You're listening to the Keep Going Student Nurse podcast on keepgoingstudentnurse.com. Hello, my name is Gino D'Andrea, I'm your host, I am a student nurse and creator of keepgoingstudentnurse.com, an online motivational tool for student nurses and now a podcast. Yes, a very big welcome to you all, come on in, grab yourself a drink but put that revision down because this is a time for you to relax, to get inspired, this is the Keep Going Student Nurse podcast. This is a show that's designed to shine light on the good things that often get overlooked in the world of nursing. Each week I'm going to be talking to someone in or around the world of nursing, gaining an insight into what they do and why, rounding off the show with my quote of the week. So here we are then, episode 2 of the podcast. Thank you so much to everyone who joined us last week for the very first episode. We reached well over 100 listens from all around the world in less than 24 hours. And thank you again for your very kind and honest feedback. I've got a lot to reflect on, a lot to build on, and I can't wait to see where we can take this podcast together. This week, I had the pleasure of sitting down and talking to Kenny Gibson. Kenny is a registered nurse and head of Public Health Commissioning London. He is currently transitioning into the role of National Head of Safeguarding. He is the Senior Responsible Officer for Homeless Health London and also the Associate lead nurse for prevention for public health england i sat down with kenny for well over an hour and i can honestly say that i could listen to him talk for days he is a true leader in every sense of the word he's so humble so kind so passionate and so very supportive of students kenny actually started his nhs career as a laundry assistant in 1981 before training as a nurse and we covered so much in this conversation that i had to release it in two parts one thing to look out for in this episode in particular is kenny's positive view on imposter syndrome this is something that i know many of us students experience each time we visit a new placement and Kenny later on in the show describes three types of senior roles within the health sector and that really really opened my eyes. For anyone like myself that aspires to one day maybe progress up the nursing ladder you're going to maybe want to take some notes. We spoke on the phone early morning on Easter Sunday. I hope you enjoy it. Hello Kenny, lovely to speak to you today. Hello Gino. Thank you very much for taking the time to speak to me on this Easter Sunday morning. No problems. You are a registered nurse and Head of Public Health Commissioning London, currently transitioning into the National Head of Safeguarding. That's correct. You are also the Senior Responsible Officer for Homeless Health London and the Associate Lead Nurse for Prevention, Public Health England. Well done. Now you can breathe after all those uh, titles. (laughs) (laughs) One question that a lot of people have asked me to ask you, how did you start your NHS career? Ah, my, my NHS career started in a mental health unit in, in Aberdeen, Royal Cornhill. And when I left school at uh, 16, with my two O-levels, one geography and one woodwork, um, ra- rather than going into the, the local industry of deep sea fishing, uh, because I come from north of Aberdeen, I decided to try and work in a mental health trust and uh, mental health unit. And I worked as a laundry assistant. So I, I, I worked in the sort of laundry. And what we did in, in that unit was we took some of the, the clients, uh, we actually called them inmates then, and uh, we took them down for work experience to the laundry and uh, I learned how to uh, work with patients in mental health units, but uh, that transferred into being what was commonly called then a nursing auxiliary. So yes, from a laundry assistant to nursing auxiliary, and that was back in 1981. Wow. Um, in Aberdeen, yes, very last century. And so did you envisage at that time where you would be today? No, not at all. Uh, 
I mean, I, I still do, I still have to pinch myself sometimes. Um, I, I I came from a very small village in the north of northeast of Scotland called Gardenston, where you know you were never nurtured. You you were never you never aspired to be a uh, top of a tree or middle of a tree. You were always bottom of the tree, mm. and um, and throughout my Throughout my sort of school years, it was all about you know provided you have a job and provided you know don't go don't go too high flying in your aspirations. And even now, if I'm going to a meeting with someone and I walk across London to go to that meeting, I sometimes have what I would refer to as imposter syndrome. I do have to pinch myself to say, oh my goodness. I'm a nurse from a small village, started off as a laundry assistant, and I'm about to have a meeting with so-and-so about this global issue. How how have I got here? And I, I think that's not uncommon for nurses to think like that as they get up the sort of what you'd call the hierarchy, but as, as they get inspired to take up senior jobs imposter syndrome or oh my goodness how have I got here it's not uncommon and most of my peers at this level also have this what happened how did I get here moments about twice a year actually I think also as students we get that as well and it's really reassuring to hear someone like yourself say that you do sometimes feel that feeling of imposter syndrome because I certainly get it when I go onto a, a new ward for the first time as a student. You almost feel unworthy of being in that environment and it's really nice to hear someone as developed as yourself in your career to say that you still get the same feelings that we do so early on in yes. our journey. I hope that never stops because I, I think for me as a as a nurse, um, I, I think it's a privilege to be in my position, but also it is humbling to be part of, whether it's individual care or uh, population health or global well-being, it is truly humbling some of the things that we get involved in, and particularly some of the the life stories and some of the lived experience that we have the privilege of listening to or being engaged with. And I think that's also part of that uh, humbling experience or imposter syndrome. It's, it's second to none. I don't think any other career, any other group of professionals I've met, except sometimes policemen, um, what what they engage with is truly humbling, but also, oh my goodness, I'm dealing with this on a sort of a bigger level. Is that sort of imposter syndrome? Yes, it's um, it's something I hope always stays with me. And also, in in terms of your your pathway in in your own mm. kind of development, I, I've read somewhere as well. I think it was your LinkedIn. I found you also have a PhD in emotional intelligence. Is is that true? That's correct. Yes, I did. Yes, I did. As part of life's life course uh, in Aberdeen, hmm. I was I was considered to be a very energised, charismatic clinical um, leader, and so from a very early time, when I qualified as a nurse, I was fully funded and fully supported to go through the whole gamut of um, uh, academic studies. 
so from my general training into an, a BSc and an MSc and a PhD, fully funded, um, always working. And at that time, it was very much the, the type of study. It was, a, it was built into your work. It was built into your work objectives. And I do, again, look back and think, oh, my goodness, in the 80s and 90s and into the noughties, the NHS did take nurses, developed us into that academic rigour. Um, whether that's still part of it is debatable, but yes, I, I was around in nursing at a very, very fortunate time. It's really nice to hear your story. One thing that I've also noticed as well is your presence on social media. Mm-hmm. I, I did at times resist social media because when it first started up a decade ago, I saw it very much about being Facebook. And then I had a conversation uh, with Teresa uh, from We Communities, and I was so inspired by We Nurses, I joined Twitter. So We Nurses are to thank for Kenny Gibson on Twitter? <laughs> well, Absolutely. And uh, I again, it's it's a humbling experience joining Twitter when 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 you do because so so many connections. For me, social media is not about the technology; it's about building relationships and connecting. And I've I've learned so much from people's reaction to the the tweets, mm. but also giving feedback and. And so to the tweets and also on LinkedIn as well. So it's not all about Twitter. I do, I do now stand as a big NHS twit, as I call it, <laughs> trying to get clinicians and also support staff and uh, everyone that cares for patients around to say, look, try and use Twitter. Uh, and I also mentor people onto Twitter as a sort of social media and we nurses, particularly for capturing learning. Um, my my revalidation portfolio has been totally uh, driven by reflections from me communities, reflect, uh, reflections from early risers, hashtag, and such things like that, that it's so prolific and so much useful reflective feedback i i actually did my whole revalidation portfolio by social media wow which uh, yes it, um it's not quite a digital portfolio but i very very seldom now have a week at which i haven't picked up and learned something new something different something to reinforce my my theories from social media it's an incredible learning medium for me mm. um but then you know not everyone not everyone suits it and not everyone trusts it so um we, we have to remember that but yet social media and learning a tremendous boost and boon for nursing and uh, allied health definitely I think that's that's a really good thing to note as well for students uh, like myself. I think there's a lot of value in social media. I, I think there's not only a lot of value for you personally as a professional, there's actually a, a rise of evidence that from a point of view of changing hearts and minds and influencing clinical practice, but more important, influencing 
the, the, the citizens change of uh, illness prevention and health promotion, social media is very powerful. If I give you an ex- uh, several examples, you Please. just need to look at some of the, some of the hashtags. For instance, uh, we had a, a horrible situation about three years ago when uh, a 21-year-old uh, student, uh, international student, died of meningitis B. And we issued a tweet, and uh, within about three hours, that tweet went to a reach of over a quarter of a million citizens. And it, 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 it proved to us that, you know, no matter, you know, what... Yes, there's, there's dangerous things about social media, mm. but... The, the health and population benefits. There's no way that we could have had quarter of a million reach with a letter or quarter of a million reach even with a news alert on the radio. But uh, that one tweet, just it was incredible to see people's feedback uh, around the prevention and getting the many ACWI vaccine. But the other type of thing is the messaging. I think self-help groups, citizen groups, um, particularly mental health and particularly those isolated or underserved groups are getting really, really good at creating uh, 140 or 280 characters of hard talk plus an image that you cannot help but be affected. I mean, some of the sepsis uh, messages from parents of a teenager, etc., are mental health messages from those with lived experience profoundly affect you as they read it, as you read it. Mm. You know, it's less words, but it does talk to the modern way of um, brief intervention and brief narrative. So I, I think the sort of social media has done a fantastic service to messaging as well as practitioner learning um, Yes, I, I don't know where it's going, but I do see it being, um, it, it is a way forward to getting global messages out to global citizens. Mm. It's very impactful. There was one I saw not too long ago about homeless people being 40 times more likely not to be registered with a GP. Yes. And that was put out by NHS England. And it was just a picture and a few words. And that really stuck with me and that drove me to go and look it up. And I thought, wow, I hadn't yeah. considered that before. Oh, thank you. I mean, that, that was, um, that's one of my other roles, Senior Responsible Officer for Homeless Health. Um, we, we decided to have a, a, sort of a more focused communication, um, as in uh, the health of homeless people, and the picture and the bold statement, um, we're, we're crafting those. You have to cut the balance there between being evidence-based, so a big, bold percentage is helpful, and not scaling too too much or not sort of over-dramatising things. So they're well, they're well pondered and well considered before they're issued. The other one that is so impressive is... Yes, there's a lot of evidence about the homeless itself, but from a global point of view, any one of us, any one of us could be homeless within three paychecks. When you stand and you hear that 
uh, you cannot help but be reflective as a global citizen. There but by the grace of who, whoever inspires you, uh, go, goes any one of us. And so these statements have been created by individuals who have had the lived experience of being no fixed abode, homeless, etc. And it changes our narrative. The example I give is we work with disadvantaged um, populations and they were often called isolated groups. Now, these people are not isolated, but they are underserved. I know it's, you know, social media has brought their narrative, their conversation, their, their exploration of the importance of words to, to the fore. Mm. So when we've recut our whole dialogue as clinicians to be their language, being empathetic and being actively listening to the words they use, because very few of these people call themselves isolated, but they do call themselves underserved. So it, it's, brought, it's brought a real rigor and empathy to the language that we use during conversations with them, but more importantly, as nurses and leaders about them. Because they can't be everywhere, but we can carry the message that they create or code co-create together, we can carry it into social media, into conferences, and more importantly, into meetings to try and get them more served or greater access. In terms of the homeless population, how do you reach those? How, how do you reach them in terms of the work that you do? I think the first thing you do as a clinician is understand you cannot fix the world. I think what I've learned is you cannot fix the world. What you can do is you can listen to groups that see themselves underserved or lack of access. Perhaps they might be migrants or asylum seekers without recourse to public funds. Mm. And you make, it, you make it your mission to fix what you can. So in London, what we do is if someone is unable to find accommodation, then we would send in the local homeless health team. It's, it's not our job to make them go and live somewhere. For some people, ex-forces, for instance, they, they may just need to live without having a fixed abode, so on the streets, sofa surfing. And what, what it's our system leader, whether I'm assessing an individual person as a clinician or whether I am assessing for the, the 8.1 million people that live in London, my job is simply to know who to refer that person to or to signpost them so, or, or people to. So you, you've got to know what services are. You've got to know what facilities there are for them to go to. And you encourage them one by one or group by group or you refer them to the people that can make the difference. The third sector, the voluntary sector, the, the faith sector. These groups have risen to the challenge of dealing with it. So I learned a long time ago as a clinician, I cannot fix that person's life. What I can do and I do as a commissioner is signpost them to a service 
or something that I think will align with our values and give them sustainable intervention. Because as a single nurse, as a single human global citizen, I cannot make a difference to everyone, but I need to pass them on to people that can. I need to pass them on to sustainable services that will keep them going. Otherwise, you'll, you'll break as a nurse because it's constant failure. You don't have the energy to do everything for everyone. Mm. So as, as homeless SRO, it is definitely my job to hunt around the system and find which services suit which individual or individuals and profile them. So it might be the Methodist uh, street preachers or uh, street pastors in Kingston that go around clubs with sandals and flip-flops so that uh, the people can get home. Or it might be the soup kitchens or it may be an outreach service. Or it may be someone who has generously offered their spare bedroom uh, during the winter for, for, for individuals. So um, all of these things, we, uh, what we do is we just build up a resource list so that everyone knows who to, when to, how to refer these individuals to. Are those your kind of teams to manage or are those teams that you work with? Are they like a resource list that you've got? How does that work? That's a very useful question because uh, you've read out three three job titles that um, and and that's what we call a, a career portfolio. I have a portfolio career. So the the homeless job the homeless job is I'm neither manager nor leader. Okay. So I do not own a budget. I do not commission with with uh, teams. I do not operate a contract. I I'm a steward. I'm a system steward who goes in and makes sure that people, patients, citizens get what they're entitled, deserve, etc. And that's called a senior responsible officer. Now, there are jobs, for instance, my public health job, I do own a budget. I'm accountable. So as a nurse, I, I have £241 million pounds of the taxpayers' money. Wow. And it is behold <laughs> it is beholden upon me as the, the commissioner and as a nurse, A to balance that budget, but also to use evidence based population health to optimize that budget. So I I have to be effective. I have to use evidence based services. I have to use uh, standing financial instructions. So even as a nurse, my code of conduct uh, requires me to be evidence-based uh, in making decisions, whether it's for one person as a dementia nurse or whether it is 800, 8 million people in London. You have a duty of care to use evidence-based. It's just the scale of what you do. Um, when it's population, it's very much scaled up. Um, 241 million sounds a lot. It's not. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's, it's not a lot at all. It, it does buy cancer screening. It does buy vaccinations. And it does buy antenatal and newborn screening. Um, but there are far bigger budgets that nurses manage all the time than 241 million 
It certainly seems like a lot of money. It, it always does. It, you know, for, when you're a charge nurse managing a ward budget, it mm. seems a lot. When you're a, a senior nurse managing a departmental budget, it seems a lot. But you know something? What I'd say to students who are inspiring to be managers, managing a budget for the NHS or the care sector, is it is far more difficult managing a student grant each month than it is managing 241 million. It is far more difficult and challenging managing a family budget on minimum wage. So people that manage household budgets and student budgets don't never lose sight of the fact that if you can balance your budget at the end of a month, it is no different to managing multi-millions. So that's, that's part of what I've learned as a nurse is my life skills of balancing my own budget have been useful at learning to be a manager. So hold on to that. If, you know, don't think you can't be a manager. If you've balanced your own personal budget and your own life budget, then I would encourage you that that's no different to being a manager of a hospital with a multi-million pound budget. That's absolutely fantastic advice. Thank you so much for that. I'm sure a lot of people are going to see a lot of uh, worth in that because I know several students due to graduate. I know several band fives that say, look, I do aspire to go into a more senior role, but I don't think I can. I don't think I've got the head for it. And I think that's a really, really good perspective for them to see it, to say, look, if you can do it on lower level, you can do it on a higher level. It's the same job, but the numbers change. <laughs> the, the numbers have six zeros, not not one zero. The, the other thing, the other thing to remember about senior roles is there's, in my experience, humble as it is, is there's actually only two types of senior roles in the care sector. As a as an as a clinician, what I've begun learning is, so you have you have well you've got three types. My apologies, you've got the one type that is a manager. Their job is to balance budget and manage people. Now, managing people is human resource management. It is a science. Everyone must be treated on the same policy. So getting people to work, etc., and balancing the budget, the workforce budget. So it's about budgeting people. The other role is about leadership, the system leadership. So where you are in a role that doesn't have much budget, but you inspire people to come with you. So that sort of system leadership. And for me, the, the other uh, role is specialist, where you are a clinical nurse specialist, no staff to manage, but you are at the peak of your, your science or art, depending on what you see nursing as and you're a clinical specialist or, or nurse practitioner in your own right. All three, all three roles are senior. One is just focused on money. One is focused on driving quality. The leadership is mainly about quality driven. Mm -hmm. And the, the other role is subject matter expert. All three are open to nurses because we are fantastic. We are absolutely to the core developed in resource management, rotors and uh, rotors and ordering stock. You're taught that as a student, uh, balancing budgets, or small or large. But we're also taught to influence, that leadership influence, 
uh, for that sort of middle section. And some of us will aspire to be subject matter experts in a very sort of niche specialism. So, you know, you then have to decide which track you're going on. Once you're, a, once you're up to that thought process, then you, sh- you should be seeking a mentor to be able to advise you, is it the money management side? Is it the system leadership quality side? Or is it, I'm going to be top niche subject matter expert specialist in my field? I'm sure there are other sections mm. or granular uh, fields, but in my investigations of management leadership and clinical specialism, all the other things fall into those three sections. And, you know, I've mentored many, many students, many, many uh, junior staff, and they tend to fall into one of those three decisions or, thank goodness, want to just have a, a sort of life which is about operating as a what I call a practicing nurse on a day-to-day basis, on shifts, etc. Um, you know, not everyone aspires to be uh, top of the tree. Um, so yes, uh, it's it's one way to look at how to develop yourself, or what fields of nursing you might, or practice, or care sector you might want to evolve. And it w- these will be more important into the future as the sort of way the NHS and the care sector is going. Management leadership and specialism will actually be more critical. Um, into the next few decades. And there we have it. That's the end of part one. How inspirational was that last bit? Absolutely phenomenal. Thank you so much to Kenny for coming on the show, for passing on your knowledge, your expertise and your passion to our students, to any healthcare professionals or just anyone who may be listening to this podcast. Next week, we've got part two. Kenny's going to talk about vaccinations and his role in that department, plus so much more. Make sure you follow Kenny on Twitter at Kenny Gibson NHS. Make sure you follow me at STN underscore Gino. Make sure you follow the show at Keep Going STN. Quote of the week this week comes from Kenny Gibson himself. He's got a very special message to all of our student nurses. I hope you've enjoyed this week's episode and thank you once again to my good friend Sid for providing the music to the show. You are more than capable of being where I am over the next few decades. You are nursing leadership. Grab it, seize it and please, like Gino, don't be scared to phone up someone and say, I want to talk to you, I want to listen to you, I want to get your wisdom, whatever you call it. That's a bit grandiose, but, you know, students need to become leaders.